Hi, I'm Alex Mosed, and we're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the ongoing battle between tech platform monopolies and large incumbent enterprises and trying to make sense of all these things that are going on every day. Uh, before we dig into things, today is September 11th, and I hope everyone was just able to take a moment out of their day, a moment in remembrance for all the people that uh, lost their lives let's see, wow, um, 18 years ago now, and all the brave souls that then went into those buildings to try and save the people uh, in there and uh, unfortunately also lost many of those lives as well. Um, very meaningful and impactful day. In my life, uh, I'm, we're, we're streaming here out of New York City. Um, just a powerful day and important to remember and, and just spend some time reflecting on these days. So. Now, let's dig into the meat of things. California has decided to pass just asinine legislation to classify Uber and Lyft drivers as employees. Yeah, I don't know. Um, the uh, YouTube kid millionaire who's, who basically opens presents for a living <laughs> is in trouble. He makes millions of dollars. I think he's seven or eight years old. An activist investor has now taken a material stake in AT&T and is challenging their strategy and this massive um, roll-up that they've been on a spree to, uh, to, to acquire both content companies and distribution companies over the past few years. Um, Epic is getting into the EHR, opening up EHR game, sort of. We're going to dig into that. Facebook is saying that they don't want to actually decide what's true and what's false on the platform. Um, which is actually echoes back to what we've talked about for Zuckerberg saying um, back in June of this year. And uh, we're, we're going to analyze that a little bit more. Um, Forever 21 is going bankrupt. No surprise there. But some details, interesting details to, to learn about that. And the Hong Kong Exchange has made an acquisition bid for the London Stock Exchange. And if you remember, the London Stock Exchange recently made um, an acquisition or announced an acquisition hasn't closed yet for Refinitiv, kind of in a bid to compete with Bloomberg. Um, but they want the LSC to drop that acquisition in order for Hong Kong Exchange to buy LSC. So that's going to be pretty interesting. So we've got a lot of meat to go over. I don't even really want to get into the iPhone launch. There wasn't anything that material there. There's an extra camera on the back of the camera. Okay, there. I covered the new iPhone launch. So California passes landmark bill requiring contract workers to be labeled as employees. Here's the problem with this. There are just countless reports that the average amount of time spent from a Uber or Lyft driver on a weekly basis, I think it's less than 10 hours a week. What you're finding is that a lot of these drivers are incremental income, right? That's why they're doing it is, hey, I've got a few extra hours. Let me go hop in my car and drive some people around, make some money. Um, there are obviously people that do this full time as a living and um, are putting in many, many hours a week, probably many of them more than 40 hours a week. But the average amount of time is an order of magnitude less than that. And it really speaks to, especially when you think about Uber and Lyft going into more suburban markets that don't have as much demand that would support just having 
tens or hundreds of full-time drivers on the platform. Certainly, you see that in the more metropolitan areas with still a, a good amount of passive kind of doing five or 10 or 15 hours a week here or there to make some incremental income. But this, uh, this bill is a, a big problem. Um, and, and I think it just goes to show how lawmakers and, and government don't understand platforms. And actually, all of the value that platforms are bringing to society, both consumers and people that have a car and want to make incremental income, it basically completely rips those people out of the equation and makes it so much harder for them to actually now make incremental income. So who are they trying to protect, right? What What is the motivation? What's the explanation for these people, these lawmakers, to try and do this? And basically, it comes down to special interests and conflict of interest. The establishment is not happy with this. You have labor unions that are, that are um, you know, sprouting up here and trying to pick a fight. And um, what what the lawmakers are trying to do is basically cram. If you think about where did these two labor classifications come from? They are 50 plus years old. The idea of you're either an employee or you're a contractor. I would actually argue if you wanted to do this properly, there should actually be a new a new classification of um, labor code for for the incremental workers you know, we're doing things a few hours here or there in this gig economy, right? Um, and then if you actually look at how contractor law is set up and employee, employee, you know, employer law is set up, actually neither of them conform properly to the structure uh, that that is taking place. If you are, say, a gig worker putting in incremental hours maybe in a few different jobs, or maybe you're putting in a few hours on Uber and a few hours on Lyft, right? And so obviously no lawmaker is going to champion creating a now a new classification of labor. And so then they just try, try and ram a round peg into a square hole. Um, and it's unfortunate. And, and really, yes, the platforms are a loser here and they're going to have to spend more money on legal fees and they're going to have to try to challenge this. But really, the big losers here are the users, are the consumers and the drivers. Um, it really doesn't make any sense here. And, um, you know, there have been lawsuits sponsored by drivers to try and get certain rights and things like that. The, the problem is the issues that the drivers bring up in these lawsuits actually aren't covered by being classified as an employee, right? The biggest complaint that drivers have is two things. One, the fees that Uber and Lyft take from the drivers. And two, disciplinary action taken by the platform, right? So if you're, if you're kicked off and you're a driver, um, or if you get a low star rating, or if a passenger gives you a low star rating, what's the process to refute that um, and, and you know, keep preserve a, a good standing on the platform? Right now, there really is no um, third-party arbitrator uh, that, that you could escalate an issue to for good cause. Um, and just because a driver could be classified as an employee doesn't give them any further protection. All this really does is say now that Uber has to pay more money on benefits and um, uh, workers' comp 
and insurance and just other fee, uh, payroll taxes. So there you go. There's California's motivation. They get more taxes out of it. The real protection about saying, hey, when can Uber raise its take rate? Um, when can they decide to kick a driver off the platform? Those are the real concerns of the drivers. Does this solve those? Absolutely not. The other interesting thing, more on a positive note, Uber has launched this thing at airports, which basically lets you uh, seamless airport pickups. What it's basically saying is now at a, maybe a handful of kind of more regional airports. I mean, they're international airports, but maybe like tier two city airports. What they're doing is they have Ubers queue up in an actual line, like a taxi line. Yes. And then you just get in the next Uber. You don't actually need to you know, order the Uber and then wait for your specific driver to come and find you. You just go to the line. There's an Uber line of cars. You get in the next Uber. Boom. You plug in this code and voila, you're in your Uber. Um, everything else is the same Uber experience, but it's like getting a taxi. What's interesting about this, if you actually look at New York City taxis, New York City taxis actually operate like platforms. Why is that? In New York, it's not true everywhere, but in New York, you need to own a medallion. So you would own a medallion. The medallions used to be selling at over a million dollars a pop. Now I think they're around a couple hundred thousand dollars a pop. Um, and a lot of banks have, have lost their shirts on, um, on having lent against these medallions. But I could have told them that three or five years ago they should get out of those loans. Um, so anyway, you own the medallion, you own the car, and then what these uh, kind of taxi management companies do is then they rent the car out, many of them on a daily basis, sometimes weekly basis, to drivers. And the drivers pay the medallion owner and taxi management company a daily or weekly fee to use the car. And then the car is then out there on the street and gets hailed down and uh, People get in and, and you know, uh, have their fare. And then that all that money from the fares, set any taxes and, and that kind of stuff, go to the driver, right? Uh, and so what the taxi management company operating as kind of like an old school 20th century platform is they're saying, I'm giving you the car. Um, I have consumers that identify with the yellow cab in New York. Um, so I have demand. And they know that they can trust this brand and, and, and the service offering of the platform. Um, and so I'm connecting driver with consumer in a, in a much more analog um, and manual way. But um, there are still these platform dynamics to a degree um, in, in kind of the old school New York City taxi medallion structure, which is kind of interesting when you think about it. And so... You know, all of this is now coming full circle in terms of Uber just emulating taxi uh, taxi lines. So another interesting story. I don't know if anyone has seen uh, this uh, this boy, Ryan Toys Review YouTube channel. He makes $20 million a year, eight years old. I think he's been doing this since he's three or four years old. $22 million a year. Sorry. That's the pound, not the euro. And um, what they're saying is, anyway, they're getting in trouble. They're, they are saying that he's getting paid to promote certain products, and that's a conflict of interest. And 
um, you know, they're going after him because he's. Whenever you are doing things to children, um, and by doing things, I mean advertising. Okay, uh, let me clarify that. What they're saying is that he's implicitly advertising to children, and that should be disclosed. It's kind of interesting. Um, a week or two ago, YouTube just settled with, I think, the FTC for a couple hundred million dollars for how YouTube was handling ads to kids. I believe kids are classified as under 13 years old. And now YouTube is spinning out YouTube Kids, a separate app, which will have much more strict policies around ads, what kind of ads can go in, how they're displayed, how, that, how that's all monitored. Um, there are a lot of laws in the U.S., specifically around um, how you can advertise to uh, children and how you need to handle their data and all these kinds of things. So there actually, I guess, could be something here. I assume they'll settle or just have a, a, a more clear disclaimer. If you see on Instagram, a lot of these Instagram celebrities, hey, this is a sponsored post. I guess, Ryan, you didn't do that clearly enough. But then again, Ryan, you're eight years old. It's really your parents' fault. Um, so keep making that money, Ryan. and playing around with toys, which is kind of awesome. I mean, you're eight years old. You're making over $20 million a year. All you do is play with toys. I mean, that's the power of platforms. That's the platform era. Welcome. AT&T. So um, Elliott Management disclosed a $3.2 billion stake uh, in AT&T and is saying that they need to review all options are on the table. Basically, AT&T bought DirecTV for maybe $60 billion. They bought Time Warner, $108 billion. I mean, wow, did they overpay. Why did they overpay? These are linear assets, people. Um, Verizon's actually been very smart. The people I've spoken to at Verizon say, hey, look, we understand that these that the technology layers are going to be disintermediated and we don't want to invest in, in these kind of linear assets and do these big content plays. Um, Verizon's deal with oath was, you know, $3 billion and it's a drop in the bucket compared to $108 billion. And I'm pretty sure AT&T direct TV was around $60 billion. Sorry, $49 billion. I mean, these are massive deals. And the problem is, the synergies aren't there. What AT&T was trying to say was that they're going to be able to build an ad business around this stuff. Well, that hasn't panned out. Guess who's the number three digital advertiser in the U.S.? Amazon. <laughs> Not AT&T. Far from it. Um, so, again, it's, it's linear business buying linear business. AT&T, if they wanted to, could roll out an extremely dominant content platform. Extremely dominant content platform. Think about all the user-generated content. Think about all the, um, what YouTube's doing. When you get to a million or two million subscribers on YouTube, they actually plateau your account. It's actually much harder if you're a content creator on YouTube for you to get to five or 10 million subscribers. They do this purposely because they don't want you to have too much power, like PewDiePie, who PewDiePie and YouTube don't get along. Um, so they kind of want to keep you in the single-digit millions. And so there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of content creators on, on content platforms that are maturing that would absolutely love to find alternative channels with huge audiences 
that they could go and create content for. They have the means to do it. They have at least, you know, a million or two or three million followers already. And what AT&T via Time Warner has is the primo traditional media content. And as we saw with Twitch and Amazon, Amazon last fall opened up Thursday Night Football to Twitch. And so what, what Twitch was able to do is go to its hundreds of thousands of, of live streamers and say, hey, come commentate on the game. And now if I'm, a, if I'm a viewer, I can watch the game and then I can watch Ninja. Well, not anymore. You can't watch Ninja because he's, he's not on Twitch anymore. But I can watch fill in the blank Ninja live streamer on Twitch commentate about the game. Barstool Sports, if they wanted to, could go onto Twitch and do their commentary about the football game while I watch the football game. Barstool right now, what they do is they post videos on YouTube of you just watching their reaction to watching the football game. And hundreds of thousands of people watch that stuff, but you can't watch the game in real time. You can just watch them reacting to it. But still, that gets huge audiences, right? So this is just one example where um, if you open up traditional media content to just, say, commentators who can now provide this, this commentary over um, the game, like Tony Romo. I love to watch Tony Romo commentate football games. Why? Because he can literally, literally predict what's about to happen. Would I pay a dollar a month to watch Tony Romo or Barstool Sports commentary while watching a football game? Absolutely. And you actually see this model with um, NFL Red Zone, which is basically kind of doing editing of the games and then providing commentary, some commentary, lots of editing. But there are a myriad of examples to say if you open up traditional media and then you let this ecosystem of content creators just kind of co-create on top of that traditional media content, you now have unique content. You now have content that's going to be much more interesting to watch via AT&T versus via cable or, um, you know, some other kind of competitive distribution channel. Not even to mention these content creators being bringing their own original content to your platform. But I think you could see this in much easier ways, kind of along the lines of these co-creation models. So anyway, that probably won't happen because Elliott management will probably get their way um, and, uh, and force a review. And AT&T will probably concede and start to divest these assets. I mean, otherwise Elliot's an activist investor and Elliot, is absolutely calling out these roll-up acquisitions that they paid huge premiums for. And I just don't see, I never did at the time. And and if anything, the market's only gotten more competitive and more expensive. And now you have Disney and Netflix and, you know, every, uh, every other week there's a new player getting into it. Um, oh, and by the way, when AT&T did the acquisitions, all the senior management left Richard, uh, uh, Plepler, I sorry, Richard, I butchered the name. Head of HBO, gone. Right, you can go down the list. All the executives that were actually running these businesses aren't there anymore. So there's a lot of issues, both just in the execution of the acquisition, um, and then you had the head of uh, AT and T's communications business step down somewhat abruptly in the past week. There's, there's. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Normally, there's fire here. 
If AT&T wanted to do platform stuff, I think they could, and they could really do it because they have the scale and they have the content. But um, I don't think they have the the kind of execution capacity to pull it off. Similar story with Epic. So I've been railing pretty hard on Epic and Cerner for the past few weeks here about these are the two dominant EHR companies, electronic health record companies. Um, that's where all your medical records are stored. Between Epic and Cerner, they control 58% of the EHR market. Um, so what Epic is saying is we're going to gather 20 million patients' records for medical research. Yeah, it's a step in the right direction. I don't know why they couldn't have done this five years ago. I don't know why this isn't already going on. Actually, this has already been going on. There are plenty of groups that have been doing this, maybe not at the 20 million scale, but certainly in the millions of patient records scale or tens of millions. Um, I think it's a nice announcement, but are they trying to build a platform model? Are they really trying to let third-party developers build software and that software can be given down to the physician? No, this is much higher level stuff, right? This is kind of broad-based medical research. This is looking at things really at the aggregate level. Um, the development platform model that we've been talking about here, which I think you're going to see the large tech companies, Apple, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, be able to actually deliver upon, and some of them already are, is to say, I have access to millions of health records, and I'm now deploying software that provides value and insights based on a combination of analyzing the aggregate, but I am now delivering insights specifically to, say, the physician or the consumer based on your individual health record. That's a completely different situation than this. This is just saying, roll all the stuff together, anonymize it, and let's do some really kind of large medical studies at the aggregate, very abstract level. It's not saying, let me, how do I pinpoint value down to the specific medical record and then bring that down to the physician or to the consumer? Completely different value prop. Oh, and by the way, the latter model is much harder to deliver on but also much more um, monetizable, much more defensible. You have network effects. You have a winner-take-all dynamic. Um, it's a platform model. This is more just kind of like a nice research initiative, maybe just because they're under fire so much recently, um, but it's not really moving the needle. Forever 21, Gonzo, see ya. This is going to continue to happen. I bet every other week, we're going to see a retailer go out of business. Now that debt got more expensive, now it's kind of becoming a little less expensive. But the problem is, I think banks are just, you know, there was quantitative tightening. That did not help this situation. I think the combination of rates rising, some quantitative tightening, um, basically what that means is the debt markets are clamming up and no one wants to fund and renew. They say it right here, the company has been searching for a new loan for months to stave off bankruptcy. Okay. Smart decision. Don't renew this loan because this business is in big trouble. This business hasn't been in big trouble for years. They've just been able to kick the can down the road for exactly what we've been talking about this show time and time again here uh, because of cheap debt markets and quantitative easing, easing 
um, and all these kinds of things that that let them extend what should have been a bankruptcy um, years ago, not in uh, September of 2019. So anyway, there'll be more to come on this. Forever 21 is not going to be alone here. They just have way too much retail space and it's too expensive and not many people want to go buy stuff in the store anymore. So there you go. Rotating back to Facebook here. These Facebook execs, they're saying they don't want to decide what's true and what's false. Anti-vax myths, distorted Pelosi videos, a conspiracy theory that a recent mass shooter was a supporter of Beto O'Rourke. They're feeling the heat here. They're feeling the heat of the elections coming up. They know they're going to be the scapegoat. And people are going to get grumpy with them and try and sue them again. But this is correct. Facebook should not be figuring out what's true and what's fake. You should. And I should. And we should be using our own minds and our own brains to just understand that in, t- in today's world, with social media, with platforms, we need to do our own due diligence to figure out what's actually true. And it's just, you can't trust the media anymore because the media's business is dead. They don't make any money. They've lost all of their credibility. And they have just become, they've succumbed to the system, which is the system is clicks and clickbaity titles so they can get their ad impressions because their businesses are completely upside down and underwater. So they've lost a lot of those kind of journalistic standards that we had come to know pre the platform era. And basically, what that means is, it really just comes down to the consumer and the individual to have to make up your own opinion. And you really kind of just need to second guess a lot of what you read out there. And that's unfortunate because it just mean, it puts more burden and more onus on the individual. Uh, but there really hasn't come up with an alternative to figure that out. And Facebook isn't going to do it. A content platform isn't going to do it. This is a service, right? I think, I think if Facebook were smart, what they should do here is let... Let me go pay five bucks a month to have a service provider that I trust. And there's obviously a lot of political things and deciding who do you trust. And, you know, that trust is a very malleable word these days. But the point is, would I pay five bucks a month if there is a variety of different service providers that could then do the accreditation to figure out is, are these articles true or not? Um, and it's got to be a manual process and you need just humans looking at it, doing the research and fact checking it. And then when you get into the nuances of it, then, you know, based on your ideological beliefs, political beliefs, then that's what makes it so difficult to kind of say, oh, is this is this absolutely correct or false or so on and so forth. Um, but uh, yeah, Facebook's never going to be able to do this properly. Zuckerberg in June said that he wants to be regulated. He wants the government to tell him. All Facebook should be figuring out is what's harmful or abusive content, not what is correct or incorrect information. Nope, that's not Facebook's job. Facebook could then get a marketplace of service providers, and that could be their job, but you're going to have to pay them money because that takes real work. Um, But what Facebook should be policing is what's harmful, abusive, or threatening content. And then you 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 can remove that. You can penalize the users that are posting that information and sharing it and so on and so forth. What Facebook is explicitly asking to be regulated on is what are those boundaries? Where do we cross the line of free speech 
when taking down abusive or hateful content. It's just like saying there's a fire in a movie theater. And if you do that, uh, you can be arrested and, and you can get in trouble for that because you're kind of harming the public interest, right? And deliberately deceiving uh, the situation. So um, that's a conversation and a debate that the country needs to have. And the FTC and our regulators should be helping to lead that charge. Unfortunately, they're abdicating that responsibility and not getting into this for whatever reason, which is unfortunate. But this whole thing about what's true or what's not true. Yeah, no, Facebook's never going to figure that one out. And they really shouldn't be. Um, so Hong Kong Exchange. So LSE is in Platt. They're in the index. They're in the ETF. Um, they bought, they, they made this acquisition offer for Refinitiv, uh, $27 billion. But now the Hong Kong exchange is saying, hey, we want to buy you LSE. LSE stock is up like 6% today as a result, but we don't want you to buy Refinitiv. These exchanges, I mean, London Stock Exchange, if you think about the NASDAQ, the New York Stock Exchange, um, these are all just exchanges. They are investment platforms. The NASDAQ, ICE, uh, Intercontinental Exchange, which owns the New York Stock Exchange. London Stock Exchange, they're both in Platt as investment platforms. Hong Kong Exchange is not in Platt. So what is interesting is if Hong Kong Exchange buys the LSE, the LSE will actually exit from Platt be, um, unless I need to check. I don't know, though, if the Hong Kong Exchange has the right reciprocity with U.S. exchanges and and does the right amount of disclosures. Um, I could feel like the just the what's going on with China and everything right now. It's a very interesting time for this acquisition bid to come out. And I feel like if I'm the LSE, I have a lot of reticence to go through with this just from the um, macroeconomic kind of country back and forth that's going on between China, China, just between China and Hong Kong, let alone then um, Asia and the West. So the last note on that is that um, I don't know what each one of these, whenever you do these uh, refinitive um, acquisitions, right? There's, there's a breakup fee. And what's interesting what what one of the what Elliot was saying about AT&T is that um AT&T tried to buy T-Mobile the breakup fee when the T-Mobile deal didn't happen i think was in the tune of like 2 or 3 billion dollars what what Elliot management the activist investor in AT&T said was that when when um AT&T paid that check to T-Mobile T-Mobile used that to launch a lot of these new kind of digital initiatives that are um i guess gaining ground on AT&T. I don't know what this breakup fee would be that the LSC would need to probably pay to Refinitiv. It's probably material. A. And then B, the deal is not guaranteed to go through with the Hong Kong exchange, even if the LSC divests itself from Refinitiv. And why that is, is because there, there's going to need to be regulatory approval. Um, for the deal to go through. Oh, and by the way, you may realize that Britain and the EU are kind of in their own little hullabaloo right now. So there's just so much unknown and gray matter in this thing. It's very difficult for the LSC to navigate. How do you turn down this acquisition, 
pay a breakup fee, most likely. It's not being stated what that is. And then turn yourself over to basically an unknown regulatory environment. Does the EU make the decision? Does Britain make the decision? Um, who can then green light whether or not this Hong Kong deal would go through. And then if you're now owned by the Hong Kong exchange, what is the role of China um, and Hong Kong? And does that delegitimize the LSE and a lot of its Western clients and Western kind of trust and, and um, all the integrity that they've built? Literally, I think it's the oldest exchange in the world. Um, so it's a landmark deal. It's a landmark property. Lots of interesting ins and outs with this. I'd give it 40%. I, I would say 40% chance it goes through. I think 60% chance it doesn't go through just because of all of these different moving parts and how to navigate that environment. But ultimately, the LSC is going to need to try and decide what is in the best interest of its shareholders. Does it go through with this acquisition, trying to go after Bloomberg and do this data play, or um, just get maybe acquired and pay breakup fees? Eh, I don't know. It'll be interesting to watch. That's it for us here on Winner Take All. Thanks for joining us, and I'll talk to you soon.